This is Glenn Crooks on frame. Domi Turan and Diego Maradona have a couple of things in common. They both spent time at Barcelona, Turan with the great success as the top assistant to Pep Guardiola, while Maradona, he scored 38 goals in 58 games, but he was shipped out after two tumultuous seasons. And both Turan and Maradona had a desire to come to the States to conduct their soccer business. Well, Tarrant did, and he's now the head coach of the Eastern Conference champion New York City Football Club in MLS. Maradona, he did not come to the States, although a move to the NASL, like the stars Pelé, Beckenbauer, and others, looked promising at one point. On Tuesday, October the 1st, HBO will present the documentary Diego Maradona, directed by Asif Kapadia, who won an Oscar for his film Amy about the life and death of singer Amy Winehouse. Kapadia joins me later on frame with a fascinating behind-the-scenes look at the making of the movie and his interactions with Maradona. First of all, I interviewed him. He was sat on his sofa um, watching Boca Juniors on TV over my shoulder. Um, and I was like, you know, uh, can I, t- I don't know if I've got the nerve to turn the TV off. But when he went to the restroom, I turned the volume off at least because um, I'm like, this might be the only interview I get. So, you know, at the beginning, you have no, his reputation is such that you have no idea who you're going to be meeting or be in the presence of. It's an enthralling story about the making of this film coming up later. First up, Toronto and New York City FC clinching their first conference title on Sunday night. Not quite the way they envisioned following a 2-0 loss at New England and City had to wait for the result of Columbus against Philadelphia, a Philly tie or loss, and the title would come to the Bronx. At his post-match interview, Tarrant knew that Columbus had a 1-0 lead at home with about a half hour to play, but he was taking nothing for granted. I remember in Barcelona, uh, in the local room, we have a TV, and I spent some time with Real Madrid, play before uh, Barcelona. And we say, okay, uh, 2-0 for, I don't know, Sevilla. Uh, what minute? 85 minutes. 3-2 for Real Madrid. <laughs> but many, many times uh, uh, I didn't expect anything. Yeah. We have to have our job. And if Columbus is uh, able uh, to win the game or to draw the game, we celebrate it because we deserve it. We deserve it. We, we play uh, eight months. We work all together nine months. Uh, very, very hard, you know, in the facilities. And uh, not me, the, I think the, the, our players, our club, deserve to finish in the first position. Tarrant would later tell that same Barcelona-Real Madrid story to his sporting director, Claudio Reyna, in the locker room as the team awaited the result at Mopfrey Stadium, all watching the game on their phones. Columbus scored a second goal, and then the final whistle. And then the celebration. New York City goalkeeper Sean Johnson and defender Sebastian Ibiaga talked about going into the locker room with the Columbus-Philadelphia match scoreless. Five to ten minutes before they scored the first goal um, and uh, saw the second goal right after that and then you know, took a shower after that, came back, glued <laughs> to the phone again. So I couldn't really take a break until, uh, until I knew what the, the, out, the score was going to be or sure. potentially going to be. So, yeah, it was, it was good. I think we were dealing with, I think, a couple emotions, obviously, with the, tonight with the loss first um, and then getting past that and realizing that we were Eastern Conference champions. I think for me, um, I was never going to celebrate. I was never going to uh, 
be content with where we were until we actually had that title of being Eastern Conference champions, and that was just my mentality. And as soon as we the final whistle blew, I think all the emotion just came out, and yeah, it was a special moment. You know, it's the first time you know we've we've achieved something as a club, and we have a lot more to go. But that's just uh, that's just a, just a taste of, of of what what it feels like to 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 win something and to be to be victorious over over a length of months. Um, we worked really really hard this year, so we'll look to keep going and. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we're, this team's built to do something special. It obviously came off the field, pissed off, you know, like you said, lost or missed opportunity, missed chance to just kind of take it for ourselves and keep it going. But, you know, came in here, started watching the game, 0-0 at the time, I think it was like the 55th, and we just kind of watched it the whole time. Columbus scored, and we just were like, okay, this could actually happen, like, all right, and then they scored another one, and we were just all really ecstatic and just hoped they could hold that to the end of the game. A little disappointed not to just do it ourselves and get the three points here, but none, I mean the goal is still the same no matter how we get it. I mean we still lost and you never want to lose, so I think that kind of was hanging over. It. But then when you realize that you just clinched the first or first spot in Eastern Conference, it's, I mean it's something to celebrate no matter how it happened. City's road record despite the loss at New England now six wins, five losses, five draws. Only LAFC has more wins and fewer losses on the road. A massive turnaround for City from the four wins and nine losses away from Yankee Stadium a season ago. At the beginning of 2019, six matches without a victory, Johnson and then Ibiaga took time to reflect on the reasons that New York City was able to recover and win a title. I think the most important thing is just keeping the belief, right? Um, at the end of the day, when, when backs up against the wall, you have a good, a good locker room, a good group of guys, a talented group as well. Um, you never get down on yourselves. Uh, you're always searching for answers constantly. And I think we had a group that just got closer and closer as the year went on. And, and as times were tough, the closer we got. And then once things got good again, we were already close and, 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 and those moments matter. So uh, that tough moment brought us together, I think. And um, everybody did self-reflection and realized that we could all give more to the group, um, everybody. And uh, I think we all stepped up in a big way. And, from the time that we, we needed to start getting results until now, it was uh, everything kind of fell into place, but we worked, we worked extremely hard, so don't take anything away from the, the work ethic and, and everything that everybody put into it, from the, the coaching staff, the players, the, the organization, front office. Um, everybody's worked tirelessly to get to this point, and um, yeah, we're not done yet. The culture was something Domi was trying to bring in last year. He just did, I, I just personally don't think he had enough time. I think he came in halfway through the season. Those already a previous uh, previous culture is kind of set already, and this year he kind of got to come in with a blank slate, and you know, and I think it's big. I think the culture he's preached in the locker room has been great, and you see guys performing under him. Toront replaced Patrick Vieira about the midway point last season, and Ibiaga, a perfect example of a player who has performed well under Tehran, playing right back for the first time in his pro career in Wednesday's win against Atlanta in place of the injured Anton Tinnerholm, while moving back to his normal central defender spot on Sunday, taking the spot of the suspended Maxime Cheneau. With the conference championship comes a first-round bye in the playoffs. City will take on the winner of the 4-5 match on either October 23 or 24, which at the moment would be the New York Red Bulls or D.C. United, and City qualifies for the CONCACAF Champions League for the very first time. Dome Tehran, with 24 trophies in his days as Pep Guardiola's lieutenant, 
and now his first crown in MLS. Tarrant with 11 of those conquests at Barcelona. Well after a superstar in the game spent time in Tarrant's home of Catalonia before a move to Italy set off the Argentinian on an incredible journey. Diego Maradona, uh, that's the documentary about the soccer legend. It'll be airing on HBO starting Tuesday, October the 1st. Maradona, the FIFA player of the 20th century, an iconic, enigmatic, and tragic figure all in one. He led Napoli out of the depths of Serie A while guiding Argentina to a World Cup title all in the same season, becoming a soccer god. Academy Award winner Asif Capadilla. He's the director of Diego Maradona. His prior work, you may have seen the documentary Senna about the Formula One champion Ayrton Senna and Amy, the story of singer Amy Winehouse, for which he won an Oscar. Asif, uh, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to speak. Thanks for having me on. Good to, good to be here. Thanks. The, uh, the soccer side of things, are you a soccer guy? Is, is the sport attractive to you? Oh, absolutely. No, I, I, I'm, you're going to have to forgive me. I was bit spin between kind of soccer and football. I grew up playing football, um, watching football. And uh, so, yeah, always. It's, it's kind of always been the, one of the most important things in my life from a very young age. I'm very good at uh, calling soccer football or vice versa. No problem <laughs> here. So uh, how are you drawn to Maradona? I, um, <clears throat> I mean, one of the main ways that you saw players, great players from around the world, was always World Cups. So I remember him from various World Cups. The 1982 World Cup, he'd been built up as the best player in the world already. Um, he was only a young kid, 21, 22 years old. Um, and the World Cup in 82 was in Spain. And actually, he was a bit of a letdown. You know, he didn't really do much. When he did play, he got sent off for a really nasty tackle against Brazil. So my first memory of him was, you know, this big build up, and then he was a bit of a letdown. Next World Cup was the 86 World Cup, where he was undisputed best player in the world. No single player has ever had a World Cup like he did in 86, scoring the goals, setting up the goals, winning best player and, you know, winning the World Cup. Um, and then I remember him from 1990, 94 in America as well. Well, I, I want to lead up to 86. Uh, it starts in Buenos Aires for him, on to Barcelona as a player, then Napoli. A child of poverty, can, can you characterize his childhood and, and how maybe you defined it in this documentary and how it might have set the stage for the next steps? Well, you see, soccer around the world really is the, it's the sort of working person sport. It's the sport for poor people. Everywhere really but the U.S., it's, it's the kids playing on the street, playing, you know, often barefoot. So whether it's in Africa or Asia, particularly in Latin America, it's the way you can get out of the slums. So Diego Maradona came from a very tough place called Via Ferrito, which is on the outskirts of Buenos Aires, the main kind of capital city, huge mega city, capital of Argentina, a place with no running water, no electricity. You know, essentially he lived in a shack with his entire family in one room. So at that point, I think there were five of them and his parents living in a, in a room. And, you know, it's often the story of a kid who has a talent, who is able to get a contract and get a deal, enables his family. Diego's football deal enables his family the opportunity to get a home for the first time. They get an apartment, they get a door key for the first ever house. And that's at the age of 15. So he came from a really tough place. He's a street guy. He played street football. He was very street wise. 
And as you watch the film, you'll see that that kind of character, he continues all the way through. The way he plays on the pitch and the way he is off the pitch is a guy from the street. So he grew up in a in an area where uh, there were a couple of uh, top teams, Boca Juniors. Uh, so is that where he was uh, discovered, so to speak, and, and started to be able to support his family? Actually, no. He, there's another team in Argentina, in, in Buenos Aires, called Argentinos Juniors. So his first contract is with a team called Argentinos Juniors, where he plays as a youth player, and he gets his first professional contract. He then gets signed by one of the big teams, Boca Juniors, who are one of the biggest in Latin America. There, there's River Plate and Boca are the two teams, big teams in, in Buenos Aires. He plays for Boca. That's kind of his team all the rest of his life. Um, but at a very young age, 20, 21 years old, he gets um, bought out by Barcelona, who are not the Barcelona. Then they were not the Barcelona that you kind of know as now. Um, this is this is a time when they hadn't won the championship for quite a few years, but they're hoping he's going to be the big star that helps them win. And he doesn't have a great experience in Barcelona, actually. So really his career kicks off when he then gets sold on to Italy. And at the time in the 80s, Italian football was the best football in the world. It had the best players spread around all of the teams. It was by far the toughest league championship and probably in soccer terms, football terms, the toughest championship probably there's ever been was to be able to play in Italy in the 80s. And he, he joined Napoli, and at the time, they were on the verge of a relegation when he arrived. Ultimately, they win their first Serie A title, led by Maradona, and that was the 86-87 season. And he was the captain of Argentina, winning uh, the World Cup in Mexico in 1986. So all this happening in the same year, and I suppose that's when he really became a larger-than-life figure. Yeah, I think I think that achievement of winning the World Cup obviously is like the ultimate thing if you're a footballer. Um, but I think really what what I wanted to do with the film is actually tell you about what he did as a player in a kind of the league championships because the the achievement for Naples, Napoli to win a championship. They were a really poor team. They were one of the poorest cities in Europe. They had one of the biggest crime problems, biggest highest murder rates massive issue with gangs and kind of there's a war going on between different gangs, lots of drugs around. And the most expensive player in the world, Diego Maradona, goes to essentially one of the poorest cities in Europe and takes a team that's never won anything before, was about to be relegated, and then within three years wins the championship, you know. So that achievement is amazing. And I, I, really, that, that's the kind of less well-known part of his story. You know, people know about the World Cup. They know about the hand of God. They know about the best goal ever that he scored against England as well. They know about what happened to him in latter years. But really, his period of time playing in Naples was not really well documented. It's pre-podcast, pre-digital radio, pre-newspapers writing about international football. And we were able to get these tapes to show what he was up to. You know, we found this footage that had been shot of him for during his seven years in Naples. And that really makes the kind of basis of our movie. Was he drawn to Naples, do you think, because of his own upbringing, uh, the economic hardship, uh, the working class? I mean, absolutely. Once he's there, he realizes this is the perfect place for me. The honest truth is it's the only team that wanted him. He needed to go. He needed money. He was he was bankrupt at the time from Barcelona. He'd been bought by, for you know, it was the biggest um, transfer of all time. Yet somehow all the money got blown. He wasn't really someone to worry about putting a bit away in the bank. And so he, he needed money. He needed money quick. And he had to leave because he'd 
burnt all his bridges in Barcelona. The only team really that came in for him were Naples. And so he goes there and he sort of admits in the film, he didn't know anything about the place. He didn't realize how bad they were. He didn't realize how poor the place was um, until he gets there. But once he gets there, you know, he realizes actually this place needs me. He needs love. He needs attention. And the Neapolitans are really full on, very, very passionate people. And so he almost finds the perfect place. His mother's side, a lot of Argentinians originally came from Europe and particularly from Italy. And so he's actually, he's got a kind of link via his mother's side to southern Italy. So for him, it was almost like going home. And then he ends up leaving Napoli uh, in somewhat disgrace in 1992. Uh, it appears that drugs are the culprit and uh, the kind of life off the field that uh, leads to problems. So in Napoli today, do they, do, they, uh, do they still laud him? Is he still a hero despite everything that happened at the end? Yeah, he actually left in 1991. He didn't really finish that season. But, yeah, if you, if you leap forward to now, he's, he's a hero. He's a god. They love him because the truth is they've never won anything since. You know, they've won the odd cup, but they won two Scudettos, two championships with Diego Maradona playing for them. And that was back in 1990 was the last time they won a championship, and they've not won since. So he's, he's kind of, he is a, essentially treated like a god. He is a myth. He is a legend. They all love him. They all dedicate, you know. There are lots and lots of generations of kids called Diego um, in Italy and in Naples. Um, but, yeah, it, when it ended, you know, as we were talking about earlier, it did end badly. It turned sour. And really that's the story of the kind of rise and fall of Diego Maradona in Naples. He, everything's going great, but he doesn't necessarily love to train. He doesn't do things by the book. He likes to go out. He likes to enjoy himself. He likes to party. And essentially, he went to a place in Naples where they let him do what he wanted. He had absolute freedom. And because he kept delivering on the pitch, he becomes this kind of saint, this godlike figure. But the problem with that is if no one ever says no, it can get out of control. And that's what happened with him. So eventually, it all turns very sour after a key match in the 1990 World Cup, which happens in Italy. Asif Kapadia, our guest, he's the director of Diego Maradona, which will be uh, debuting on HBO. It's already been out in the theaters, but HBO starting Tuesday, October the 1st. Asif, you mentioned those two goals in the 86 World Cup, uh, uh, and they were both in the, in the quarterfinals against England. That spectacular slalom through what seemed like the entire England team, and then the other, the hand of God, uh, the goal that would now be overruled by VAR, uh, but do those two goals fit in kind of with the the polarizing figure that he was, that he is, you know, maybe a cheater on one hand there and, and just this unbelievable athlete? Yeah, you know, the whole saying we have here is that football's a game of two halves. Well, <clears throat> the film is really about the kind of double sides of Diego and Maradona. There's a good guy and there's this other guy who's quite edgy and the street guy. So there's the genius and there's the cheat. There's the saint and the devil. Someone who's loved by millions of people and hated equally by other people. So the reason why he's interesting is he's very divisive. You don't have lots of people who are indifferent to Diego Maradona once they know his story and once they've come you know, across him. And really the way to sum him up, his own biographer said to me, you know, is if you take the two goals, if you want to sum up an entire career and a very long life, but you take the two goals against England in the 86 World Cup quarterfinals, he scores one with his hand and he scores one brilliant goal where he takes on the whole team, essentially, from his own half. And that sums him up. And it's only three minutes apart. And, and essentially, one side of him is the street guy 
who will do whatever he has to do to survive. And he's very good at doing, you know, at the handball in a way that nobody really saw it first time. I was watching that game live. I don't think the commentator saw it. I didn't see it. Half the England team didn't see it. But when you look at it on replay, it's obvious. But nobody saw it at the time. And as you say, it's pre-video rest. It's pre-anyone watching from the side. The linesman didn't see it. Referee didn't see it. I can tell you that actually, having done so much research on Diego Maradona, I've seen him do that three or four times. Oh, half is that the time right? he gets away with it, half the time he gets caught. So he's done that a lot. It wasn't a one-off. And then the other side of him is the genius, you know, the best player in the world, the guy that can run and run and run and dribble at speed and go in and out of players. Um, and this isn't a time when people could tackle. This isn't a time where people could take you out and even break your ankles, right? Now football is so different to the 80s. At that point in time, if anyone could have kept up with him, they would have banged him and hit him and taken him out. But they couldn't even catch him. And this is at high altitude as well. We're talking about Mexico, the Azteca Stadium, high altitude in Mexico City. So um, he, was, he was an amazing player. He had incredible sense of balance, very low center of gravity. And yeah, really that match against England is the match, even more so than winning the World Cup and the World Cup final. That is the match that sums him up why he's a legend and why a lot of people out there don't like him. So you said there's a Diego and there's a Maradona because you you uh, I wanted to ask you this. You you pr- directed these two films, Senna and Amy. Why didn't you just call this one Maradona or Diego? Was that the reason? Yeah, there's a clue. The clue is in the title. When you see the film, you'll see that that becomes a big part of his psyche a big part of, you know, understanding the psychology of this character is to understand the two sides to the person. With Senna, um, it was very much about his solo character. I wanted a very strong title. Graphically, it looks great. And it was just this simple name. And it was just all about him and his battles with other people. Amy was about going back to a very simple girl before she became famous, before she became Amy Winehouse. She was just this girl, Amy. And so I wanted to take her back there. With Diego Maradona, you know, there's Maradona is the iconic player, and Diego's the person almost that he is known by his friends, you know, the, the private guy, the family guy. Um, and really the film is essentially about these two sides of his own personality that are at times in conflict. Now, in Senna and Amy, so the, the protagonists were deceased when you produced these films or directed them. Maradona, 58 years old, very much alive. I saw a quote in an interview where you said, even though he's alive, I'm kind of making a film about someone else who's no longer with us. Can you explain that? Yeah, you know, um, it's true. I didn't get to meet Ed Senna. I didn't meet Amy Winehouse. They were both made after. Both of them had died, and it was really trying to unravel their lives. Excuse me. With, With Maradona... I did get the opportunity to meet him. He was living in Dubai. I interviewed him there, met him four or five times. I, I, contractually, we had a deal where I could interview him for up to nine hours. And so essentially, yeah, I, I had the kind of amazing opportunity to spend nearly 10 hours with Diego Maradona talking to him about his life. He's a fascinating character, very charming, very charismatic, but he's not someone who really looks back. He's not someone who ever has any regrets. That's very much his personality. It's not him. It's the rest of the world. Um, and so that, that was a very interesting challenge and, and a part of it. And, and when you see the film, you hear his voice and a lot of the challenging things that happened in his past, I asked him about it. And when you hear his voice, that came out of the interviews that we did together. So you hear his voice 
but you don't see his face, his current visage? I, I continue, yeah. I have a particular style of, of making my movies where I, I like to go back to a particular moment in time. So with Senna, I didn't have any talking head interviews. I just use archive to try and tell you what it was like at the time as best I can. So it feels more like a movie. I did the same thing with Amy and same here with Diego Maradona. I decided uh, the first time I went to meet him, I took a camera, but actually I, it, it becomes a bit of a song and dance and I want to keep it simple and I want to get to the heart of it. And actually the film became about this kid who arrives in 1984 to Naples, who's in the prime of his life. And so the person I was interviewing now in essentially 2017 and 2018 in Dubai was a very different character, as, as you said earlier, to the person I was making the film about. I chose not to put him on camera. I chose to keep it very simple so that I didn't get a performance. He's very good at becoming much bigger and larger than life when there's a camera on him. And I actually wanted a much more low-key honesty. Um, and I prefer having a very small crew when I make these interviews. And so... I essentially went there on my own, sound recorded, and had one other person who was there translating. And that way, I hope you'll find when you see the film that there's more of an honesty that came out of our interviews. Uh, really fascinating. I, I wonder when you're, when you're sitting there with him, uh, what's his body language like? Does he look you straight in the eye when he's answering questions? What was that like? Oh, yeah, sure. He looks you in the eye. But what's funny is that when he's not looking you in the eye, he's watching television. Because the first time, I, uh, <laughs> first time I interviewed him, he was sat on his sofa um, watching Boca Juniors on TV over my shoulder. Um, and I was like, you know, uh, can I, t I don't know if I've got the nerve to turn the TV off. But when he went to the restroom, I turned the volume off at least because um, I'm like, this might be the only interview I get. So, you know, at the beginning, you have no, his reputation is such that you have no idea who you're going to be meeting or be in the presence of. Bit by bit by bit, I became more confident and was able to push a bit harder and harder. But yeah, he, he chats to you. He looks you in the eye. Absolutely. Yeah, he's he's. Once you get kind of a little moment where you, you earn his trust and his respect, actually he's cool. He's very charming, very nice. And, and the person that I met was in a good place. I thought he was very healthy at that point. You know, he looked good, he sounded good, um, and he was very charming. Well, well, you get this access, but maybe even more integral to the documentary, 500 hours of exclusive footage. You mentioned the, the Napoli uh, archives, which really, I suppose in some ways made the documentary I mean that that challenge of blending the I'm sure grainy film photos and creating this story this seems like a, a, a really cool part of this yeah so one of the reasons why this film came together was um, when Diego was very young in 1981 way back in 1981 his first agent was a guy called Jorge Sister Spieler and his agent had this idea that this kid was one day going to be the best player in the world and his dream was to try to break the USA, to break America, right? Because at the time, you know, you had Pele had just been playing there and George Best and Beckenbauer and Johan Cruyff. So this idea of breaking this big mega market of the United States was in the ether. So he thought, I'm going to get two Argentinian cameramen to film Diego play football on the pitch, off the pitch, and I'm going to make a movie and I'm going to sell it to the U.S., so he started this film, hired his cameraman in 1981. They followed Diego at the end of his kind of Boca Juniors period, all the way through Barcelona and all the way through Naples. But around halfway through Naples, his time there, um, the agent gets fired by Diego. So the cameraman get fired, probably didn't get paid. They run off with all the tapes, which are on this old format called Umatic. So the film's unfinished. 
we come along in 2015, one of our producers hears about these tapes and says, I think I can do a deal. So they go off and they find this cameraman somewhere outside of Naples, like one hour outside of Naples. And in this back room, he's got all of these tapes of Diego Maradona. Oh, come on. um, (laughs) Yeah, this is how it works. So then he does a deal with the, my producers do a deal with this guy, but you can't use the footage unless you've got Maradona on board. So then we have to do a deal with Diego Maradona's lawyer. So they do a deal with Diego Maradona's lawyer. Luckily for us, Maradona was a big fan of my film Senna. So that helped. And while they were doing the deal, this is not a joke, Amy goes on an awards run and wins an Oscar. And so on Diego Maradona's Facebook page, there's a picture of me with an Oscar. And it says, you know, this guy just won an Oscar and he's nicked films about me. <laughs> so that's kind of how all of the films come together. We then have to get this footage from Naples, have to find a deck, an old machine that can actually play the tapes because it's really old technology from the 80s. We find this footage, and then I learn when I'm doing interviews that Diego Maradona's ex-wife, who lives in Buenos Aires, has the other half of the tapes. So then I interview her, and we have to then go to Buenos Aires, take this machinery all the way over there, get her trust, open this trunk, which is also full of tapes. And so we find this material all over Italy in Buenos Aires. So I have a brilliant team of researchers, and that's how it all came together. It's very much like making a huge jigsaw puzzle but you have no idea how many pieces there are or where the pieces are hidden. Well, he's an Academy Award-winning director, Asif Kapadia, and uh, the latest is Diego Maradona. And uh, the documentary has been in select theaters since September the 20th, but it's uh, on HBO beginning Tuesday, October the 1st, and that makes it eligible for both a 2020 Academy Award and a 2020 Emmy Award. Well, good luck with all that, Asif. Uh, It's a fascinating story, and uh, thank you so much for sharing it today. Great. Thanks. Good talking to you. After its initial showing on HBO, it'll be available on demand starting on Wednesday. Diego Maradona. So New York City FC clinches the Eastern Conference Championship over the weekend. You could have heard that match live with me and Pro Soccer USA colleague Dylan Butler The regular season finale, Decision Day in MLS, will come up on Sunday, airtime 345 Eastern, for the pregame show with Dome Tarong. This is Glenn Crooks on Frame.